female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Well, it's happened again, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the show, I guess. Um, yeah, so those of you who have been listening to the program for a while now, you'd be aware that I have a pet cat named Birdie. Uh, kind of my pet cat, it's my, it's my fiance's cat that she had before she met me, so I don't really get a choice in the matter. Um, so Birdie, I have a love-hate relationship with Birdie, um, in the sense that I love Birdie, and she f- absolutely fucking despises me. <laughs> every now and again, uh, you know, every, every few months, things will be going great, you know, we'll be, she'll be all cuddly, she's nice, I feed her dinner, she likes me, I'm not just the spare human anymore, I'm actually, like, a guy that maybe she respects, and then, um, something happens, and it's not my fault, I want to say that out front, something happens, and, uh, the cat just gets on edge, so the other night, I was, I was just lying on the couch, just minding my own business, doing the New York Times, you know, wordle and crossword, um, as you do when you're like 30 and getting old and um, totally minding my business, not not hurting anyone, not hurting a goddamn fly. And uh, I feel this fiery pain in my cheek followed by a, a spray of blood and a hissing sound. And I, <laughs> I move and I turn around and the cat has jumped up onto the arm of the couch um, and is the cat version of screaming at me. Um, and she's, <laughs> she's, uh, she's attacked me. She's sliced my cheek open from ear to chin, pretty much. Um, blood everywhere. Um, <laughs> and I didn't do anything. I've not, we, the, the theory is that she, um, she, so, so my partner took the cat to the vet and apparently the cat's a little chonky. She's not, I will, I will say, I'm going to defend the cat in here and say that she's a good looking cat. She is slender. Um, but, but the vet is, you know fat phobic and basically fat shamed the cat and said the cat was too fat uh needed to lose weight so we've turned down the cat's auto feeder but now the cat's hungry all the time and i my theory is that the cat somehow got it into her mind that the guy who'd been lying on the couch for an hour at that point and hadn't moved was gonna eat the food or something and so she attacked me and she's been on edge ever since then i think what's happened now is that she's realized that she attacked me for, she attacked the giant creature that lives in her house for no reason. Um, and now she's on edge because she thinks I'm going to retaliate. And I am going to retaliate. Not physically. Don't call Peter or any of those guys. I'm not going to physically hurt the cat, okay? I'm just going to psychologically torment the cat. You know, every now and again, I might like do a fast, sudden movement, make her flinch. Um, no, that's. <laughs> That sounds awful. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to, you know what I'm just going to do? I'm going to flip the cat off. Every time the cat's in the room right now, and I'm flipping her off. Up yours, birdie. I'm giving birdie the bird. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) what is this show? Oh, yes. Welcome back to Man It Is Everybody, the only true crime podcast on the internet uh, where all the killers are real animals and where the host actually is one of the people being attacked by the animals. 
lately. Uh, my name is Jimby. Um, you can call me Papa John uh, today for no reason. Is Papa John's pizza good? I don't know. I in in Australia we kind of have we have Domino's, we have Pizza Hut, uh, and we have like a thing called Crust, um, and those are kind of like th- the three big ones. But in America, I know you guys have Domino's and Pizza Hut, but then there's also like there's like Little Caesars, and I think there was a Little Caesars where I lived for a while, and then you have Papa John's. And I is Papa John's good? Like where does it rank? This is now a pizza podcast. I wonder if that's a thing. It's now a pizza podcast. I'm your host Pepperoni Pete, and we're here to talk about. Um, pizza, pizza gate. We're here to talk about Hillary Clinton's underground pizza restaurant where she, uh, sexually assaults children. Is that what happened? This is a weird intro and it's got to stop. Okay. <laughs> what are we doing today, guys? We're on to part three of the Tigers of Chowga. So, uh, as stated last week, we continued our story after initially, <laughs> initially starting the story back in March of 2023. Um, we're finally back onto the story of uh, Jim Corbett hunting down the deadly tigers of Chowgar. And just a quick correction from last week. I think I offhandedly said that the tigers had killed hundreds of people. Uh, that's not true. This tiger, by the end of its reign, had killed about 64, I think it was. Um, but the numbers are disputed um, because the the total tally doesn't take into account people who died after um, the initial attack. So if you got attacked by a tiger and survived the tiger attack and then died later from sepsis or from shock. Uh, for some reason, the official number doesn't count you, um, which is weird. And Jim Corbett, if, if you listen to last week's episode, by the end of it, um, Corbett theorized that um, the... the uh, I need to go back and tell a bit more of the story for this to make sense. So basically, there were two tigers. Uh, in our first episode back in 2023, we talked about how Jim had the chance to shoot one of the tigers, and he shot the tiger, hoping to get the mother, the older of the two, but he actually shot the sub-adult cub, um, which which killed. By the end of... Uh, and he was regretting that for ages because he thought that that mistake had killed lots of people, and it kind of had. But by the end of his, um, sec- I guess, first hunt for the man-eater after that, that happened, um, he came to realize that the two tigers, like the cub must have been assisting the, um, the, the, the mother because, uh, he said that like, you know, one in a hundred, um, tiger attacks, the victim will get away. But multiple times last week, we heard how victims were getting away and dying later. So he theorized that the mother was having trouble killing, uh, its prey potentially due to an injured tooth or claw, something like that. Um, and that the, the sub-adult cub uh, was actually helping the mother kill the people. So he, he was a, a, a designated man-eater as well. Um, so that's kind of where, where we're up to. Um, he uh, Jim Corbett has killed the first tiger, been hunting for the mother for, for months at this point with no luck. Uh, every time he goes to get to try to kill the tiger, no luck. He did a bit of a side quest um, last week where he kind of, they went shooting for Gural, which is like a type of uh, goat or deer, I think. And, um, and uh, a Himalayan black bear (laughs) entered the scene. And so they shot and killed the black bear as well. And then at the end of the first hunt, um, Jim and his group came across a man, uh, like a cattle herder, uh, a buffalo herder on the road. And, um, the buffalo herder was kind of saying like, oh, yeah, no, there used to be a tiger in the area, but like it hasn't been around lately. I'm pretty sure it's dead. And Jim was like, uh, no, man, like I- I've literally been seeing its pug marks like it's in the area. You should go home as soon as you can. And um, 
no sooner had like he said that Jim Corbett's group left, and then that that tiger that that um that buffalo herder was attacked by the Jaguar tiger, um and badly mauled, and he was only his life. At that point, his life was only saved because the buffalo came back onto the track and frightened the tiger away. The man climbed up onto the back of one of his buffalo. Um, it They just took him back to the village. And that would be such a great story, except the guy did actually die, <laughs> unfortunately. And that's kind of where we left the story last time. Um, Jim has gone, uh, he's left the area. Uh, he's been hunting in the wilderness for, for months. Um, and he, you know, he's only a guy. He can't just be out there in the bush forever hunting a tiger that would get on your nerves so quickly so he's gone uh but he promised that he would be back in a year and that's basically where we left our story off so uh let's just jump back into the story now um this is part three of the tigers of chowgar so in february of the following year Jim Corbett went back to Dalkinia. Since his departure from the district the previous summer, a number of people had been killed and numerous others wounded over a wide area. Since it wasn't known where the tiger was and the chances were equal in any location, Corbett made the decision to go back and camp on the ground that he now knew quite well. When Corbett arrived in Dalkinia, he was informed that a cow had been killed the night before on the hill where his bear hunt had occurred. The tiger was the animal they were so certain was the killer of the cow, according to the men who'd been herding cattle at the time. From where his tent had been set up, he could see the kill, which was lying next to some bushes at the edge of an empty field. Circling above the kill, Corbett noticed three vultures sitting on a tree to the left of the kill when he looked through his field glasses. After observing the scene, Corbett concluded that A, it must have been a leopard that had killed the cow, not a tiger, and B, that said leopard was lying close to the kill somewhere, because the kill was lying out in the open, and the vultures hadn't landed upon it yet. The cow was lying in a very steep area, covered in thick brushwood beneath the field. Since the man-eater was still on the loose, it was not advisable to approach it over this terrain. There was, however, a grassy slope to the right, but the terrain here was too exposed to allow him to sneak up to the kill unnoticed. Starting from the hilltop, a steep valley with dense forest cover down directly to the Nanhir River passed close by the kill. At the brink of this valley grew a tree that the vultures were sitting on. Corbett chose this ravine as his approach route. His men had made tea for Corbett while he'd been working in the village, and the villagers knew that every inch of the trail to plan out the stalk. Even though the day was getting shorter, Corbett could still visit the kill and return to camp before dusk if he continued to work hard. Corbett gave his men the order to be alert before leaving. Three or four of them were ordered to leave the camp right away and to follow him, staying on the open land, and if they heard a shot and saw him on the open ground, to close in on the kill. However, a search team was also to be prepared if Corbett did not fire and did not return by dawn. With the wind blowing downhill, his progress was slow as he made his way through the ravine that was littered with large rocks and covered in raspberry bushes. Corbett made a strenuous ascent to reach the tree occupied by the vultures, only to discover that he could not see the kill from this location. 
Corbett discovered that the abandoned field, which had looked fairly straight through his field glasses, was actually crescent-shaped, measuring 10 yards across at its widest point and tapering to a point at both ends. The hill dropped sharply away from the inner edge, while a thick undergrowth surrounded the outer edge. From Corbett's position, only two-thirds of the field could be seen. To reach the other third, where the kill lay, one would have to either climb the tree where the vultures were sitting, or to take a large detour and approach from the far side. Corbett chose the latter path. Based on Jim's estimation, the cow was approximately 20 yards away from the tree, and it was quite likely that the creature responsible for her death was close to him. If not for the vultures, it would have been difficult to ascend the tree without alerting the killer, and no attempt could have been made. There was now 20 of these vultures in the tree, and more were joining them. Because there wasn't much room on the higher branches, there was a lot of wing flapping and fighting. The tree was tilting away from the hill with a large limb jutting out over the steep hillside at a height of roughly 10 feet above the ground. Uh, Due to this obstruction, Corbett found it extremely difficult to climb, and when a fight broke out amongst the vultures, he stepped off and waited for a branch to open. Reaching a fork required careful balancing because one misstep might have sent him plummeting a hundred feet or more to the rocks below. Now, finally, the kill was finally visible, and Jim noticed that only a few pounds of meat remained on the cow's skeleton. After about 10 minutes of positioning, Corbett was beginning to feel uncomfortable on his perch when two vultures, who had been circling about and were unsure of their reception on the tree, landed in the field not far from the cow. Just as they began to settle down, the shrubs on either side of the kill began to stir slightly, and a large male leopard emerged into the open. Now, Corbett says that the grace of the moment and the beauty of the colouring that makes leopards one of the most graceful and attractive animals in Indian forests are beyond the comprehension of anyone who has never witnessed one of these creatures in optimal conditions in their natural habitat. Their allure extends beyond physical attributes as he possesses an unparalleled strength and bravery in comparison to other animals. As is the case in many regions in India, to classify an animal as a pest or vermin should be a crime that only individuals whose knowledge of leopards is restricted to the wretched, underfed and mangy specimens often seen in captivity. Despite the leopard's beauty, Corbett rationed that the leopard had forfeited its life since it had started attacking livestock. During his previous visit to Dalkinia, he had promised the villagers that he would eliminate the leopard if the chance arose. Now was the time, Corbett thought, and he did not believe that the leopard heard the shot that killed him. Among the numerous inexplicable occurrences in life, the most difficult to explain is how bad luck follows a person or a family. The owner of the calf, which Corbett had shot the leopard over, is one such example. The boy was eight years old, and he was the only kid left in the family. Twelve months later, his father had met the same end as his mother, who had perished two years earlier. She was devoured by the man-eater while out cutting grass for a cow. The son began his life as the owner of this single cow, which the leopard had now slaughtered out of a herd of over two or three hundred village cattle. 
The few pots and pans that the family owned had been sold to settle the modest debt left by his father. Nestled at the base of a massive granite cliff, rising to a height of several thousand feet, is a settlement located five kilometres downstream of the Nanthair Valley. On the outskirts of the village, the man-eater had killed people during the last six months. Not long after Corbett had killed a leopard, a delegation from this community came to ask him to relocate his camp from Dalkinia to a location close to their hamlet that he had chosen. They informed Corbett that the tiger lived in one of the many caves in the cliff face and that it was often spotted on the rocks above the settlement. Corbett was told that the locals were too frightened to leave their homes after seeing the tiger that very morning while several women were out cutting grass. Jim got up early the following morning, climbed the hill across from the village, and spent an hour or more using his binoculars to study the cliff, telling the group that Corbett would do everything in his power to assist them. After crossing the valley, Corbett ascended the cliff above the village by means of a rather steep gully. Here, the going was quite rough and not at all to his taste, for apart from the risk of a fall that would have broken his neck, there was also the risk of an attack against there would be no protection from himself. By 2pm, after taking in as much of the sheer cliff face as possible, Corbett headed up the valley towards his camp for breakfast. Just as, he was begin to his, just as he was about to begin the arduous ascent from Dalkinia, he glanced back and noticed two men sprinting in his direction. Upon their arrival, the men told him that Corbett had ventured into a steep ravine earlier that day where a tiger had recently killed a bullock. Corbett instructed one of the men to proceed to his tent and give his servant instructions to send tea and food. Then he turned around and walked back down the valley with the other man. The bullock had been slain in a valley that measured roughly 200 feet in depth and 100 feet in width. Corbett noticed several vultures rising as they got closer, and when they reached the kill, he discovered the vultures had stripped it down to the bones and skin. From only 100 yards, only 100 yards separated the location of the bullock's remains from the village, but there was no way to climb the high slope. Instead, his guide led him a quarter of a mile down the valley, where a cattle road crossed. Once the track gained elevation, it would work its way through a thick undergrowth of scrub jungle until arriving at the settlement. Upon reaching the settlement, Corbett informed the headman that the kill had been destroyed by vultures. Jim then requested a young buffalo and a short piece of sturdy rope from the headman, and while these were being obtained, two of his men arrived from Dalkinia bearing the meal Corbett had requested. When Corbett returned to the ravine, the sun was almost set. A few men were dragging a boisterous young male buffalo that the headman had bought from him by, from a nearby town. One end of a pine tree that had been washed down from the hills above had been buried deep in the ravine bed 50 yards from where the bullock had been slaughtered. The men went back to the village after tying the buffalo firmly to the exposed end of the tree. There were no other trees around, and the village side of the ravine was the only location where a sit-up would be feasible. Corbett struggled mightily to reach this ledge, which measured roughly two feet in width by five feet in length, and was situated 20 feet above the ravine's floor. 
The granite shelved inwards from slightly below the ledge, creating a deep chasm that was hidden from view. The ledge was unpleasant because it was angled downward. When Corbett sat on it, he faced the direction he thought the tiger would come from, with the tethered buffalo to his left front and approximately 30 yards away. The buffalo was asleep when the sun had set. Quickly, though, he got to his feet and faced the ravine. A moment later, a stone began to, tam- to tumble down. Corbett sat motionless to avoid being discovered because he could not have fired his gun in the direction that the sound had originated. The buffalo eventually faced his direction after he had progressively shifted to the left. This demonstrated that whatever he was afraid of, and Corbett could tell that it was afraid, it was hidden in the nook beneath his ledge. Suddenly, a large tiger's head materialized right beneath him. Only in an emergency is a headshot against a tiger acceptable in a hunt, and any movement on Jim's part could have indicated that he was there. The tiger's head stayed motionless for a considerable amount of time, about 60 seconds, until it suddenly leapt forward and landed on the buffalo. As previously said, the tiger was facing the buffalo. In order to escape a frontal attack where it could have been injured by the buffalo's horns, the tiger dashed to the left of the buffalo, making his approach at a right angle. Beyond the impact of the two massive bodies, there was no real struggle, no scrambling for a toothhold, no real sound at all. The buffalo lay motionless, with the tiger partially covering it and gripping his throat. Now, many people believe that a tiger kills its victim by striking it in the neck with a powerful blow. This is false. Tigers actually use their fangs to kill by delivering a crucial blow to the jugular or anywhere else in the neck. The tiger's right side was facing Corbett as he fired the gun, carefully aiming the 275 he'd taken with him when he left from camp that morning. Giving up the buffalo, the tiger turned and bolted up the ravine, disappearing from view without a sound. Clearly a miss, and Corbett could find no explanation for it. Reloading the rifle, Corbett sat on, realizing it was necessary to stay there since there was a chance the tiger would return if it had not seen him or the rifle's flash. The buffalo lay still after the tiger had left him, and he began to believe that Corbett had actually shot the cow and not the tiger. After 10 or 15 drawn-out minutes, the tiger's head re-emerged from the recess beneath him once more. After another lengthy delay, the tiger gently surfaced, approaching the buffalo, and remained there staring down at it. Corbett was determined to make no mistakes the second time, with the entire back at his target. The sights were precisely adjusted, and the trigger was slowly pulled. However, as Corbett had anticipated, the tiger rushed to the left, tearing up a little ravine and pushing stones aside as it ascended the steep mountainside. There were now two bullets fired at a distance of 30 yards in rather excellent light. The terrified villagers could hear the shots for miles around. Corbett would only have one, probably two, bullet holes in a dead buffalo as evidence of the incident. It was evident that either his vision was deteriorating or Corbett had misaligned his foresight while scaling the rock. However, 
Corbett discovered that his eyesight was fine when he focused on small objects, and a quick look down the barrel indicated that the sights were in perfect working order. As a result, the only explanation Jim could come up with for missing the tiger twice was poor marksmanship. The tiger was very unlikely to come back for a third time, and even if it did, there would be no benefit to taking a chance on simply injuring it in poor light, given Corbett's failure to bring it down in relatively good light. In those conditions, there was no purpose for him to stay on the precipice any longer. A hot cup of tea was waiting for him back in the town. His clothing was still moist from earlier expeditions. A cold wind was blowing and it was forecast to get worse. The rock was hard and cold and his thin khaki shorts were soaked. As valid as these arguments were, there was a stronger and more compelling reason for Corbett to stay in the vicinity. The man-eater. It was getting rather dark now, and all that stood between him and the village was a stroll through thick vegetation and a ravine dotted with boulders. Corbett was not certain of the man in his whereabouts. She might have been 50 miles away at that very moment, or she could be observing him from 50 yards away. Despite how uncomfortable his position on the rock was, Corbett had to stay put out of caution. As the long hours passed, Jim became more and more convinced that he had no interest in man-eater hunting at night and that the animal would have to be let to die of old age if it was not possible to shoot it during the day. This belief was reinforced when Corbett, freezing and rigid, began to descend as soon as there was enough light to shoot past, finishing the drop at his feet in the air by slipping on the wet rock. Luckily, Corbett fell on a sand-filled area without injuring himself or the gun. Now, Corbett discovered the village was awake early, and he soon found himself at the centre of a small group of people. Corbett could only respond to the inquisitive inquiries posed by all parties by stating that he had, began, he had been using blank ammunition to shoot an imaginary tiger. After reviving his inner and outer core with a pot of tea and a fresh pair of clothing, Corbett headed to the location where a rock protruded over the ravine just above his nocturnal exploit, joined by most of the men and all of the youths in the village. Excitedly, the crowd erupted as Corbett pointed up the ravine. Look, Sahib, there's the tiger lying dead. The tiger had emerged from the recess beneath him, bounded on the buffalo, and then dashed off in the direction after Corbett fired. Now, even though he kept a close eye on the tiger throughout the night, his eyes were straining from the night, but the reality was that the tiger was dead. It couldn't be denied. In response to the inevitable inquiry about why Corbett had fired again after 20 or 30 minutes, Corbett stated that the tiger had reappeared from the exact same location that Corbett had shot it, and while it was standing close to the buffalo, that it had proceeded up the side of the ravine, and that they were now that it now had been joined by new cries. Girls and women who had now emerged said, Look, there's another dead tiger up there, Sahib. The two tigers were situated 60 yards apart from the spot where Corbett had fired, and they both seemed to be roughly the same size. Now, this is one of the parts of the story that I personally find so incredible. If you didn't, um, if if my narration wasn't clear, what had happened is that um, Corbett had sat up on the rock all night, and he believed that he'd shot. There was one tiger, and that he'd shot twice and missed twice, and he was actually quite embarrassed because if you know Jim, he's like one of the world's greatest big cat hunters at this point. For him to shoot a tiger in pretty good light um, that was standing still, and for him to miss twice, it was actually kind of embarrassing. 
But that's not what had actually happened. There were actually two tigers. The first one he shot and he hit and it died. And then another tiger showed up the exact same way. It's very weird. It's very rare for that to happen, but it did happen. So when he was questioned about the second tiger, the villagers claimed that only one tiger had been spotted the day before when the bullock was slain and the humans had been slaughtered. Tigers have an erratic mating season that stretches from November to April. Based on the evidence, whichever of the two tigers in the area was the man-eater, she had clearly found herself a partner. A path into the gorge via the precipitous cliff wall was discovered a few hundred yards beneath the spot where Corbett had taken his seat. Accompanied by the entire community, Corbett proceeded past the lifeless buffalo to the location of the first tiger. Hopes were high as Corbett drew near because she was an elderly tigress, just like the tiger of Chowgar, just like the one he'd been looking for. Corbett knelt down to look at her feet and handed the rifle to the closest man. Beautiful pug marks on the side of the field left by the tigress on the day she stalked a woman cutting wheat. Corbett had studied the pug marks closely because they were the first he'd seen of the man-eater. They revealed that the tigress was an extremely elderly creature with splayed feet from aging. The toes were stretched to a length Corbett had never seen in a tiger before, and the pads of the forefeet were badly rutted, with one deep rut running directly over the pad of the right forefoot. It would have been simple to identify the man-eater among a hundred dead tigers thanks to this unusual footprint. To his dismay, Jim discovered that the creature that lay in front of him was not the tiger of Chowga. Now, there was a murmur of strong opposition from all sides when Corbett informed the gathering crowd of this knowledge. Corbett was said to have shot a man-eater a few yards from the spot where, not too long ago, five of their people had been killed, claiming himself to claiming himself to be an ancient tigress during his previous visit. What use was the evidence of feet against this compelling proof if every tiger's feet were the same? Given the conditions, Corbett could only assume that the second tiger was a male, so he sent a group of men to get him as he prepared to skin the tigress. The tigress and the second tiger, a handsome male, lay down next to each other in the small and steep side ravine following much roaring and laughing. Now, Jim later said that one of the worst jobs he'd ever had to do was skin those two dead tigers. The sun was pounding down on his back, and there was an increasingly large swarm of flies around him. They'd been dead for 14 hours. The work was over by early afternoon, and Corbett was prepared to begin his five-mile trip back to camp with the skins neatly tied up for his men to carry. Headman and other individuals from neighbouring villages in the, uh, had arrived in the morning. Before departing, Corbett reassured them that the Chowgar tiger was still alive, and he cautioned them that if they relaxed their security measures, the tigress would have the chance she had been waiting for. If his warning had been heeded, the man in it would not have taken the number of victims that she did in the months that followed. After another incredibly taxing hunt for the man-eater, Jim had to leave Dalkinia once more to keep several appointments he had made with other people around the region. Jim would leave the village, but promised he would return once more to try and find the man-eater of Chowgar. And this concludes the story of the second hunt for the Tigris. Yeah, 
There you go. That's uh, part three of the Tiger of Chowgar. Uh, an incredible story. That story of him staying up that night and killing killing two tigers is uh, that's absolutely insane. I, my jaw dropped when I read that in the book. Um, I should have mentioned, as uh, you know, the same as last week's episode. The um, the the main source for this episode and for all these episodes is the Man Eaters of Camoan, which is a book written by Jim Cord himself. Has hunt tons of great stories uh, about his exploits uh, killing man-eaters in India and other places. All right, we're going to leave it now for a break. We'll hear some messages and we will come back. Go and do a wee. Hey, guys. It's me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm doing my own ad. That's right. No one else would book a sponsorship for this segment, so I'm doing it myself. This ad, quote unquote, is actually just a little reminder to tell you that we have a website. That's right, www.maneaterspod.com. You can visit that website for all your man-eater goodness, including, and this is very exciting for those of you who like wearing things, merchandise. That's right, a lot of you requested some man-eaters merch, so I have very generously obliged. So you can go there for t-shirts, for mugs, for drink bottles, and yes, to those of you who went last week and tried to buy something and the website was broken, that was my fault. I forgot to put in a PayPal thing, so it wouldn't accept any orders, but you should be good now. unless it's still broken. Uh, so head to www.maneaterspod.com for all your Maneater merch goodness. Buy a t-shirt. It means I can eat food. Bye. And we're back. Great ad, if I don't say so myself. Fantastic ad. Well done, whoever that was. Okay, folks, now on to the next segment of the show. Of course, you know what it is. Why are we pretending? It's the scratch of the day. Scratch of the day, of course, the segment of the show where we look at animal attacks in the news this week and we just talk about it and we just learn and we talk. Some sad stories today. No funny ones, really, to be honest. More interesting than anything else. Okay, our first story. uh, This is from ABC News. Expert says shark attacks in Sydney Harbour are rare after a woman was bitten. I remember my first time to Sydney when I was in primary school, and they told us that um, sharks actually do live in Sydney Harbour, but usually they're like green earth sharks, and they're not particularly dangerous to people. But apparently a woman was uh, bitten. This was on the 30th of January. So let's read all about this. I didn't hear about this in the news. So let's see what happened. Um, this is written by Marianne Tauk. Well done, Marianne. Okay, ABC News reports. Questions are being raised on the safety of swimming in Sydney Harbour after a woman was attacked by a bull shark on Monday evening. Ooh, bull sharks are no joke. Also, I didn't know people actually swam in Sydney Harbour. It's pretty gross. Um, okay. Lauren O'Neill, a 29-year-old avid kayaker, was attacked by a shark near a private wharf off Billiard Avenue, uh, Billiard Avenue, sorry, in Elizabeth Bay just before 8 p.m. Ms. O'Neill was taken to St. Vincent's Hospital with serious injuries to her leg. Calls to stay out of the water have been made by local councillors, but what do the experts say? How rare are shark attacks in Sydney Harbour? The short answer is very rare. There have been multiple shark attacks in Sydney Harbour leading to the Parramatta River since records began, according to the Australian Shark Incident Database collected by the New South Wales Department of Primary Primary Industries. 
The earliest incident was when a woman was killed by a great white shark in 1791. That is very early on in Australia's history. On Tuesday morning, City of Sydney councillor Linda Scott urged people to stay out of the water in the harbour. Amy Smoothie, a marine ecologist from the DPI, has been studying sharks for the last 15 years and said shark attacks in the harbour were rare and uncommon, and experts are not sure what to make of why the sharks are biting people. That's the million dollar question, she asked. She said there was no proof that bull sharks were being belligerent. Quote, Bull sharks have this really bad reputation that they are the most aggressive species, and there's actually no scientific evidence to suggest this. That's interesting. That's in contrary to what a lot of what I've heard before. Uh, the, the article then asks the question, is this the season for sharks? Summer and autumn are when bull sharks are most active across the harbour, from the Parramatta River through to North Head, according to DPI research. Dr. Smoothie said the conditions were ripe for the attack. Quote, What we do know about bull sharks is that they are crepuscular species, meaning that they are more active during the low light periods, such as dawn and dusk and during the evening, she said. We've tagged 87 large bull sharks in Sydney Harbour since 2009, and those sharks have ranged in size from 2 metres to 3.2 metres in length. What happens next? If you're thinking a shark hunt is on the a shark hunt is on the cards, it's not. Dr. Smoothie said the chances authorities would be able to find the shark that bit Ms. O'Neill was very, very low because they move quickly and don't stay in one particular location. She urged swimmers to exercise caution when swimming in the water during the summer months, but said that the chances of another bull shark attack occurring were incredibly low. If you think back to Australia Day, there were tens of thousands of people utilising Sydney Harbour having a great time. Shark bites are incredibly rare events. While the experts agree exercising caution is wise, there is no foolproof way to avoid an attack. There's no 100% safeguard against sharks when using Sydney Harbour, Dr. Smoothly said. Marine biologist Vanessa Piriotta from Macquarie University said she hoped the latest attack was a timely reminder of the importance of being educated on marine life. Quote, A positive to come out of this negative is to take more of a look at our marine ecosystem because it is a beautiful one at that, she said. The more I think about it, the more my, you know, quote on people not swimming in Sydney Harbour is dumb. Sydney Harbour is really big. I was just thinking of like the really little, you know, the bridge part, the opera house part, you know, that one. Um, that's kind of what I was thinking of. I wouldn't go swimming in there because that part is pretty filthy. But um, no, the rest of the harbour is pretty nice. So yeah, I hope that woman's recovering fine. And um, it's interesting. We've we've talked a lot about sharks on the show, obviously. And, you know, the three big ones that we hear about, the great white shark, the bull shark, and the tiger shark. And I've always heard that the most aggressive was the tiger shark or the bull shark and that the great white shark was just the most prolific because it's just like massive size um yeah and it kills the most people so there you go um i guess if you're going swimming in sydney harbour or anywhere in the summer just take it easy um in australia i don't know if it's if it's irregular but i have been noticing a lot of sharks at beaches in newcastle where i live and in sydney um a lot of sharks being called out. I saw a, it was like a TikTok, I think it was Manly Beach. And the guy, he's like, there's a bull shark in there. They're not very good. Uh, probably hop out of the water. If you stay in the water, good luck to you. <laughs> Along those lines. Very, very Australian behavior at that. Uh, this next story's 
pretty fucked. Um, New York Post reports 85-year-old grandfather mauled to death by dogs while protecting wife. An 85-year-old grandfather has died while defending his wife in a vicious dog attack in Indiana, according to reports. William Mundine was fatally mauled in his own backyard by multiple dogs in Indianapolis around 10 a.m. on Wednesday after they first went after his wife, Betty, family members said. She ran into the house and helplessly watched on as dogs repeatedly bit her husband, who had tried to shoo them away, according to Holly Watkins, the victim's granddaughter. Quote, I say he saved my life. He was a hero, Betty told WTHR. Thank God for him. He lived to be 85 years old, she said. He's been blessed. He is going to be missed. Mundine suffered critical injuries to his arms and legs during the attack. He later died from his wounds at the hospital. My mother is distraught, said the man's daughter, Melissa Mundine. These dogs are just loose, and they've been on the loose for weeks. This was the third dog attack in the area just this week, including one at a school bus stop, according to animal control officials, who were already nearby at the time of the attack looking for aggressive animals. Officers from the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department shot one of the dogs after the attack. It's being held at the pound where it is receiving treatment, officials told WTHR. Indianapolis Animal Control Service soon picked up a second dog. They scoured the area for a third dog described as a brown and medium-sized dog, but have yet to locate it. Holly Watkins recalled the horrific, the horror of her first hearing of her grandfather's screams. It was horrifyingly scary. I've never seen him like that, Watkins told WRTV. I will never forget those cries. Neighbors who live nearby claim aggressive stray dogs have been an ongoing problem lately. Police have asked for the public's help in identifying the owners of the dogs. Find the dogs, Melissa Mundine said. Find the owners of the dogs and let's get this situation handled. Yeah, guys, that is a... Uh, that's awful. So, Jesus. Yeah, that's sad, man. Who, who's, whose dogs are these? Who let... I, not to be blue about this, not to be, like, totally disrespectful. Who let the dogs out? Um, that's the question. Who let the dogs out and led to the death of this person um one of the dogs is still on the loose as well that's kind of scary um yeah not much to add i mean dog attacks we've talked about them a lot before and primarily the two types of people that get killed by dogs are the elderly and the young the newly the newly bred and the nearly dead as they say um a lot of times when old people get attacked by dogs it's actually like it's a heart attack thing because of the trauma of losing blood or being bitten on the arms and legs, they actually have heart attacks quite often. So it, this guy didn't have a heart attack. He um, he survived, went to the hospital and died later on. Um, all right. God, very sad. I, I try to limit myself to one dog story a week, um, but there may be more. <laughs> Bear with me. Uh, yeah. No, yes, <laughs> there is another dog story. This one sounds even more horrific than the last one, if you can believe it. This is in the New York Post again. This is published like four days ago. The head, this is maybe a this is maybe a gold star warning. Um, dog rips chunks out of wheelchair-bound man caught on tape attack. A wheelchair-bound Florida man was torn apart by a pair of oh my god was torn apart by a pair of dogs in a vicious attack that left witnesses helpless to stop the animals from biting chunks out of the victim. 
sickening footage obtained by WPLG and partially blurred out, uh, sorry, partially blurred out shows the two dogs taking turns biting the man, known in the Florida City neighborhood as Smokey, as he lay on the ground with his wheelchair upended last Wednesday. The severely injured victim, who one neighbor said is homeless, was unmercifully pulled around as nearby drivers furiously honked their horns in the hopes of scaring the canines off. At one point, oh my God, there's a, sorry, there's a, there's a photo here. It's pretty bad. Uh, at one point, a commercial truck driver was seen continuously blowing his air horn right next to the scene to no avail. One witness told the station the disabled man was getting quote-unquote chunks ripped from him, while neighbors also threw items at the dogs in an attempt to stop them. The dogs would not get off this man, he said. That concrete truck has a loud horn and that didn't work. Smokey was taken to the arm and needed arm stitches. The, <laughs> the dogs have names. The dogs, named Boo Boo <laughs> and Jumpity, Jumpity's a good name, lived on a property, a nearby property neighbors told the local outlet. While their owner was in jail, other dogs, <laughs> while the owner was in jail, others were watching the dogs before they got through the home's fence, the station reported. Another neighbor uh, told WSVN, that when she heard sirens blaring, she thought it was a car crash. When I looked, he was lying on the ground, arm hanging like this, she said. The dogs were full of blood. He was full of blood. Miami-Dade County Animal Control said the dogs are in custody. The organization has not determined yet whether the violent pooches will be euthanized, according to reports. I would, I reckon they will be. Boo-boo. Uh, Boo-boo is typically better behaved, while Jumpity is known to display aggressive behavior, residents previously told WPLG. Jumpity, the black one, that's racist, uh, jumps over the fence. He can literally jump over the fence, the neighbor told the station. I was very amazed and surprised by that. I think he's a very dangerous animal because he did attack another person before. Yeah, what the fuck? Residents described Smokey as a lovable presence in the neighborhood. Smokey is an excellent guy, neighbor John Oz reportedly said. He's homeless, but he's got people that support him. Um, wow. Let's see if I can find the video. Maybe I'll watch, yeah, I don't know, we'll see. We'll see if we can watch the video. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's have a, I might watch it first, and then I'll see if I can play it on the air. Oh, God. Local 10's Hat Silvella is live with the exclusive new evidence in Hatsel. This video is just so difficult to watch. It really is. And when you talk to neighbors, Christy, they'll tell you that they remain stunned by the vicious attack. Very graphic to watch. We should tell you those dogs remain in the custody of the county here. People honking, hoping the dogs will stop attacking. The video is so graphic, we chose to blur some of it. The defenseless, wheelchair-bound man could not get away as the two dogs continued biting him. The savage attack in Florida City landed this homeless man in the hospital. He was getting chunked, man, you know, and his face was red. This man did not want to show his face on camera, but told us he saw the whole thing. The they, dogs would not get off this man. Not even with the, that horn. That concrete truck has a loud horn and it didn't work. People gathered around, started throwing things at the dogs. Nothing would work. 
the man attacked, we know, goes by Smokey, now in the hospital, recovering after undergoing surgery in his arm. Those who know him say he typically takes this street to go to the corner store. As for the dogs that attacked, neighbors say they go by the name of Boo Boo and Jumpity. Florida City Police say the owner of the dogs who lives at this house is currently in jail, so other people were taking care of the dogs. Somehow, they got out. Both dogs are now in the custody of Miami-Dade Animal Services. They're telling us if they determine that these dogs pose a public safety concern, the department will humanely euthanize the dogs in accordance with Chapter 5 of Miami-Dade County Code. And back. Yeah, there you go. I mean, that's fucked. I'm glad that Smokey's alive. Um, I would probably bet money that the dogs will get put down. Especially lie, jump. But at this point, Shut no up. telling how long Shush, that man. Uh, especially Jumpity, who seems like a really fucked dog. Uh, all around sad today. Um, this is this next story is more incredible than anything else. Um, yeah. All right. Let's read this one. I'm just gonna get straight into it because the headline is nuts. Man cuts off arm to escape caged bear attack. Uh, what? Here we go. A Swiss tourist has cut off his own arm after a bear dug its teeth into him and refused to let go. The man, Stefan Claudio Specogna, Specogna, was feeding the Asian black bear at a wildlife sanctuary in Chai Mai, Thailand, when it grabbed his arm in its jaws. After struggling to free his arm from the bear's maw and not wanting to harm the animal, the 32-year-old man took out his pocket knife and chopped off his crushed forearm, reported the Bangkok Post. God. The man was given first aid by bystanders and rushed to the nearby Chow Do Hospital. He was then taken to another hospital for a surgery, although it's unclear if his arm will be, re will be reattached and saved. He was rushed to Changdo Hospital with a this is a quote. He was rushed to Changdo Hospital with a torn arm piece from the elbow in critical condition. He was recently transferred to a private hospital downtown in Chimei for surgery. One News 31 said in a Facebook post, sharing images of the man and the bear. I can't read that because it's in Thai. Asian black bears, also known as Asiatic black bears or moon bears, are native to East Asia, Southeast Asia, India, and the Himalayas. These bears grow to around 300 pounds in weight and are a similar build to brown bears. Asian black bears are the most bipedal of all the bear species, being able to walk on their hind legs for up to a quarter of a mile. Wow. These bears are listed as vulnerable on the IUCN Red List, facing population declines due to deforestation and poaching, often for their skin and gallbladders, which are used in traditional medicine. Some bears are even kept in captivity in, quote, bile farms to extract the liquid from their gallbladders, a practice considered inhumane by animal welfare charities. Asian black bears are usually quite shy, but are usually more aggressive towards humans than brown bears than American black bears. In the wild, these bears attack and kill many people, often when in close quarters and encountered suddenly. During an attack, Asian black bears will knock their victim over, rearing up on their hind legs and then proceeding to bite their limbs or head. Quote, 
Asiatic black bears are naturally found in landscapes that can be shared with predators such as tigers, and so they can display aggression as a means of defending themselves against attacks by predators in the wild. Edward Narayan, a senior lecturer in animal science at the University of Queensland, told Newsweek. In landscapes occupied by humans, it can become a problem for both the humans and the bears, as the encounter between these two species often appears as conflict. Bears may see humans as threats, such as hunters, and they can be aroused by humans that approach them without much warning. Poor choice of words. Let's not say that the bears get aroused by humans. That's not what's happening. <laughs> Attacks from these bears have risen in certain areas in recent years, including in India's Jammu and Kashmir provinces. Between 2000 and 2020, 2,357 attacks were recorded. Attacks were more frequent in areas where the bear was forced into proximity with humans, driven by the expansion of agricultural practices and human and sorry and habitat fragmentation. Quote, Bears are wild animals, and they can have certain degrees of aggression depending on factors such as age, sex, and re reproductive status. For example, males can be aggressive during breeding, and female bears with cubs can be highly defensive to protect their children. If food and mating opportunities are limited due to human encroachment of their habitat, it will heighten the bear's vigilance and aggression. Japan has also recently seen a spike in Asian black bear attacks, with 2023 seeing at least 212 people attacked and six dead. This marks a record-breaking year in Japan, overtaking the previous record holder of 158 attacks in 2020. The Asian black bear that attacked the volunteer had been rescued in 2013 and moved to the Wildlife Foundation from Dofa Diang uh, National Park in Chaodao. There you go. Wow. The, the story really didn't focus on the, the big part, is that he cut his own arm off. That's fucking insane. That's wild. That's like 127 hours, but it's a bear instead of a big rock. God, make that movie. I would... I would pay money to see James Franco get eaten by a bear, would you? Alright. <laughs> mean. What has James Franco ever done? He slept with my girlfriend. No, he didn't. <laughs> he slept with someone, though. He slept with all those kids at his, um, <laughs> at his university. I mean, they weren't kids. They were students, but still, don't, don't fuck the students, man. Alright. Let's move on. Last thing today, uh, we're gonna do our Wacky Weirdo of the Week. segment is like scratch of the day uh but it's for the people who do the naughty naughty stuff with the animals so look i'll be honest this name is kind of not working wacky weirdo of the week kind of sounds like it's going to be like a funny little chill mistake people made the last few have been about people having sex with dogs and beating the shit out of deers so i think this one's probably not going to be much different uh this headline reads pet grooming business investigated for animal cruelty uh let's see this is in uh, Gaut Gautier is Mississippi M-I-S-S or is that Missouri? I think Mississippi's M-I-S-S right? Let's assume it's Mississippi because I feel like Mississippi might be more of a wild place for this to happen than Missouri but okay Gautier, Mississippi Gautier Police Department announced it's investigating Sandy's Pet Grooming 2 <laughs> Sandy's Pet Grooming 2 T-O-O -O. Sandy's Pet Grooming 2, bad name Sandy uh 
<laughs> it's investigating Sandy's pet grooming too for several violations on Friday. Gorgier PD said officers received a Crime Stoppers tip on Tuesday of alleged animal abuse, neglect, and illegal boarding at the business. On Thursday, police, along with Animal Control, Gorgia Code Enforcement, investigated Sandy's and required the business to cease all operations due to multiple code violations. Friday morning, a post was made on Sandy's Pet Grooming 2's Facebook page. The post said, in part, actually, why don't I just read the whole thing? I'm going to do, like, my best Mississippi accent. Uh, oh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take me to the actual Facebook page. Whoa, here we go. Oh, Alright, we're going to read some comments too. This is great. To my dear clients, my fur babies, my fur baby families, friends, and my loving staff, I would like to start off by saying thank you to each and every one of you for continuing to love Sandy's pet grooming too as much as I do. I am always striving to learn more about this growing business and put your pet's needs to the forefront. I am always grateful for giving me the opportunity to care for your fur babies. As we do take this time to rebuild and reevaluate, to make mindful changes to better serve our clients in a timely manner, I do thank you for patience and understanding as we learn to make this the happiest place for your fur baby's experience. This is the most valuable gift we can ever receive. That's what keeps our hearts happy. We will call everybody to reschedule your appointments. I do apologize from the bottom of my heart for any instant convenience this is called. Um, Jesus. All right. They didn't really uh, address the fucking allegations of animal cruelty there, did they? There there are a bunch of, like, um, comments here. Uh, also, there might be an audio change. My microphone broke, but I just fixed it. Um, <laughs> there's a bunch of comments in that Facebook post, which I will read later. I want to finish reading the article first. Um, Police also said one person was arrested for an unrelated outstanding warrant. Representatives with the Jackson County Animal Shelter also assisted with the investigation. All animals were returned to their owners and none were taken by animal control. Anyone who has information about this crime, blah, 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 blah. Okay, let's read these comments because it's juicy. Um, there's 22 comments. I'm not going to read them all, but they're very supportive for the most part. This one says, uh, my dogs have been going there for years without any problems or hints of abuse. <laughs> Okay, that's good. Um, I know, I just know I brought my dog there for a groom at 7.30 a.m. and she still wasn't done after 5 p.m. That's unacceptable. Appointments are made for a reason. <laughs> this is a post about fucking potential animal abuse. Okay. Looks like a hurried job. In insane. Wow. The police. Yeah, wow. <coughs> this person says... um disgruntled ex-employees and people who were jealous of your success can make all kinds of claims but that does not make them true i have been in the business numerous times and have seen firsthand the love you have for your fur babies hang in there this too shall pass um yeah wow this is a someone posted a photo of the gotcha police department statement um god yeah the gotcha police department responded to a crime stoppers tip of alleged animal abuse, neglect, and illegal boarding. Um, yeah, damn. Interesting. Nothing that I haven't already read there. Okay. God. Wild. Um, yeah. I don't, look, it, it, it doesn't say 
I can't tell if this is true or not. I don't want to shit too much on this business. Um, you know, we, we have no idea if it's true. That This will be like a follow-up-up kind of deal if we can find out if any of this actually did happen. Um, all right, Gangarang, we're going to leave it there. Um, I, again, I, I apologize if the audio quality went really weird in the middle of the episode. I, like, I'm just listening back to certain parts and there's some, like, in the middle, it kind of gets a little fucking weird. I'm not sure what I've done wrong. So hopefully you made it through and you didn't stop listening and you're still here at the end. Um, I want to thank you all for uh, your kind messages, your support, all that kind of stuff. Uh, please visit the Patreon, patreon.com slash man uh, It's your best way to support me other than going to the website, obviously, and buying some merch. But obviously, only do that if you can afford to. Um, and one more thing I'd love you to do is uh, make sure you review it. Review the show. Give it a five star on, on Spotify or wherever you're listening. My analytics say most of you are listening on Spotify, but wherever you do listen to the podcast, give it a thumbs up, rate it, do all the good stuff. It really helps me out. Um, and yeah, look, that is probably going to do it for this episode today. Thank you so much for listening to Mandy's. We'll be back next week with the final part of the Tigers of Chowgar story. We're finally going to get to the conclusion what happened to the tiger. Spoiler alert got shot in the fucking face. Um, no, that's not, I don't know if that's true. Probably not. Um, it got shot though. That's, that's definitely true. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic week ahead. Look after yourselves. Stay safe out there because as we've learned, what's the rest of the thing? Oh, it's a jungle out there. That's what I'm supposed to say. Bye. <laughs>